welcome to the latest Science of Sport podcast. I'm your host Matt Solomon and today I'm delighted to be joined by Sarah Chandler. So Sarah is a registered dietitian specialising in sport and she works through Leeds Beckett University as both an educator, a researcher and an applied practitioner. So who better today to discuss carbohydrate and team sports than Sarah? So without further ado, it's time to welcome her onto the show. So Sarah, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, thank you for joining us. So can you give us a quick introduction as to who you are and what you've been up to until now? Um, so my name is uh, Dr. Sarah Chandler. I have to throw that little doctor in because I managed to successfully do my PhD the other day. And Congratulations. I am, thank you very much. I am a lecturer and registered dietitian working at Leeds Beckett University. And I tend to then split up my time between um, education, so in terms of lecturing, as well as then research and being an applied practitioner within team sport. Excellent, excellent. So we're here today to discuss yeah, carbohydrates in team sports, which is uh, obviously a super interesting topic in terms of performance. So before we get into what people need to do and how they can like make meals around that, what, what are carbohydrates and why do athletes need to consume them? So everybody needs carbohydrates, so it's not just athletes. We all need them in certain amounts at certain times. But if you think about really easily, it's a bit like Lego. So you can build them up into different foods, and most of the foods are starchy and or sweet, and they give us the energy that we need to really create the outputs that we ask our bodies to do. So it creates basically energy for us. So from an athletic perspective... What what does that mean as a fuel source? So it gives us energy, but like, how does that work? So I think the the simplest way of thinking is that the more we want our bodies or our muscles to contract and move, the more energy we need to be able to do to supply that. If those the foods that create the I guess the easiest to digest and metabolize and create that energy are carbohydrate based foods. So the more you train, the more energy you require. Sometimes also the bigger the person, the more energy you require, and that is reflected in sort of how much carbohydrate food you need to put on your plate to be able to then supply that energy for your body. And does it depend then on the, the type of exercise as well? Because obviously, if I go to the gym and, and do one set of one, then it's not really burning much energy, right? Yeah, so the, the, the type of exercise is really important. So we tend to be able to use um, fatty acids or fat-based foods as well for energy. But we consider the idea that they have different efficiency rates or different speeds which we can use them. So we tend to find that anything that's a moderate to high intensity, we are asking our bodies to do things faster and quicker. And so we metabolize carbohydrates much faster. So the more, the higher the intensity of the exercise reflects in then how much carbohydrate we then need to supply to ask our bodies to be able to do that. And what's the difference then between the, the carbohydrates which work fast and the, the slower versions, right? Because you mentioned sweet and starchy. They're, they're kind of different uh, types. So how does that work in terms of then two different types of carbohydrates? And yeah, obviously that's going to affect then when and why you would use them. So I think that we tend to think of them as fast and slow, but it is obviously on a spectrum. So it's almost like the idea that there are a piece of string, or as I like my Lego analogy at the moment, but the 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 process to get the carbohydrate to where it needs to be, so going from your mouth in terms of how you eat things, through your digestive system, to your blood and muscle mass in terms of um, using it appropriately, is that if the carbohydrates are one or two Lego blocks at a time, as in they don't need a lot of digestion and absorption capacity, we are able to use them slightly quicker. And most of those taste sweet. 
So our understanding of that most of them are sugary or glucose-based in terms of jelly sweets, marshmallows, something, a drink that has carbohydrate in it, like something along those lines. Whereas then when you start putting all the Lego blocks together and make a really beautiful, complicated building structure, um, that needs more time to be able to digest it, absorb it, and move it around. So your classic understanding of potato, sweet potato, rice, pasta, breads, those take a little bit longer to digest and metabolize. So it just means that the supply of that carbohydrate takes longer. And so it's just that part that is the slowness, whereas the others are just digested quicker. So that is the speed. So if we need that energy really quickly, we rely on things that are faster. If we know that we are going to take need, we have more time, then we can use things that are slower. I think it's going to be interesting to touch on how to use those later in a little bit more of a, a practical sense. But obviously, that's that's carbohydrates. But there are other energy sources too. So you don't just eat carbohydrates. I mean, <laughs> that would be fun probably. But like, there's other stuff that needs to go on too. So obviously, energy comes from different places. So what what are the other options in terms of energy production? So if, um, generally our macronutrient understanding is, is that, as I said, fat-based foods and carbohydrates can be used as energy. Protein-based foods, so our chicken, our meat, our fish, our eggs, are not usually used for energy. So if we are using those, it's actually relatively, un like, a, it's an unusual met metabolic circumstance. So something's probably gone a bit wrong if we are using protein. So in terms of our, our ratios of fat and carbohydrate is that our body uses all of them all the time. Um, it's not a light switch. We don't go from one to the other, but you use different ratios depending on the intensity of what you're doing. So when we're sitting and walking, our bodies have capacity to use our fatty acids as nice energy. We break it down, but by bits in the same cycles, and it creates energy for us to move. And then as soon as we need to start jogging, running, sprinting, we then obviously move into um, using uh, more readily available glucose and stuff that comes from carbohydrate instead. So again, it's just really the the how the demand of what it is that we're asking our bodies to do reflects and then which fuel source we tend to use the most of. And th there's some debate about, around that as well, right? So there's a lot of people who are really poor carbohydrates. There's a lot of people who are really poor fats. Can you speak to the, the, the importance of which one is better or optimal and potentially, yeah, give some nuance to some of the, the slightly hardline opinions, which, uh, yeah, you might have one as well. So you could tell us that, no, but can you, can you give us a, an idea of that debate? So the the debate, I guess, has, has been ongoing. And I actually highlight this in the, in the course that I've, I've done is that a ketogenic diet, so ketogenic being low carbohydrate and higher in fat have been, I guess, have gone through various fashionable phases. Um, I think we're probably on about the third or fourth iteration of people experimenting with ketogenic stuff. But the main idea would be that if you restrict carbohydrate, you then really push your body to adapt to using fat-based foods more. So you can utilize more fat to then save the space that you need to use carbohydrate later. So we can store lots and lots of fatty acids and fat in our body fat stores but we can only store a certain amount of carbohydrate in our muscle glycogen. So if we think that that's a, a capped or a limited source of fuel, then we obviously would really like it if we could find another one, another battery basically, to supply that extra energy that we might need, especially in endurance sport. The difficulty is, is that, as I said, it's not a very efficient transition. So the, the research generally has shown that as soon as you need to sprint, as soon as you need to respond, so if you think about a Tour de France or a, a type of event where you need to suddenly put in a kick or a sprint capacity, 
Um, you don't have the capacity to really do that if you are only trying to rely on fatty acids as your fuel based as your fuel. So the idea then that you can put both together, so adapt by increasing your fat oxidation, but also being able to use carbohydrate because you've supplied it before you compete. That's sort of this um, enigma of the perfect idea that you can use as much as you can of everything. It it does still seem to cause sort of problems where if you go too far to the one way, so if you restrict carbohydrate too much, you tend to then create other problems. Whereas if you then don't restrict enough, you don't necessarily get the fat adaptation. So I think it's one of those things where if a person wants to go down that route, I would generally recommend doing it with a nutrition professional in the view of the idea of finding the best solution for that athlete. But it generally seems to only be um, mostly fashionable within endurance or ultra-endurance sports rather than in team-based sport. Because in team-based sport, you don't necessarily ever sit in that low training, low heart rate, low intensity zone very often. Uh, that That's a, not the con- most concise way of explaining that, but hopefully... No, but I, th- I think it's, it's an interesting way of, of looking at it, right? So when when your sport maybe demands different things, then you need to have... Uh, different options available. I mean, when 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 you mentioned that, like obviously intermittent sports, team sports, um, they they have a different energy demand. So, is that energy demand then higher per minute, for example, than than endurance based sports? So you need to consume more for those uh, intermittent based sports because of that sprinting, or does it kind of equal out because of the endurance like hours that you would be doing? You probably find that actually it's a really interesting question that we don't always know that for each team sport. So team sport-wise, probably the the one that's got the most research is football or soccer, whereas other team sports have a lot less around what are the energy demands and what does that actually translate into. But I think if we're, if we're thinking of rules of thumbs or just general guidelines is that if you think of the amount of time on feet and the amount of time running, which we can sometimes then assess if we're using GPS or if we're looking at amount of time played, you can kind of equate that back into a, a level of a moderate to high intensity endurance type framework. But I would I'd say that that's a good starting place. And then after that, obviously, to adapt within the nuance of what the athlete needs, what the athlete feels, um, especially things like, say, congested fixtures or repeated matches within a tournament, that would immediately start exaggerating sort of how you might translate that. Whereas if it's just a one-off game on a Saturday and you know Sunday's a rest day, then that might change how you would perceive like how much you actually need for that game. I mean, that's a, that's a really interesting insight. And how do things like uh, body weight play into that as well? Because I think you mentioned earlier like different sizes of, of people, but like, I mean, you've got a, you've got a, in football, you, <coughs> excuse me, you've got a winger who's maybe 65 kilos and uh, what is that, five foot five, uh, 100 and 60 centimeters or whatever, I don't know, 155 centimeters. And you've got a big center back who's 100 kilos of muscle and six foot three. Like, how do you, how do you then estimate the difference between those two? Because one person's going to have, I imagine, less and one a lot more. So I guess that's part of the interesting sort of, I imagine it a bit like a music soundboard where you're pushing the buttons up and down. So you're, always tailoring something towards exactly that. So size definitely makes a difference. But if you imagine that in that football game, the winger will probably cover more distance and more high-speed meters compared to the central defender. So you might end up the fact that even though they're smaller, they end up with similar actual absolute volumes of requirements. So say it's we're talking about a carbohydrate drink. They might end up drinking the same amount because 
the one needed more per minute of activity, but he covers less ground than the winger who ends up running more. So he needs more relative, but then it ends up translating to about the same amount because he's smaller. So that's um, part of the fun puzzle that is solving sort of requirements within a team because everybody's different, but at the same time, you're also in a team environment where you have to then make sure that you're catering for as many people as possible without trying to then spend all your time individualizing everything all the time. So it's it's a bit of a um, a puzzle to solve, which I generally enjoy. But the, um, I think the definite part about size is more just that when we think about carbohydrate from a an eating perspective from a day-to-day, obviously we normalize that to size or we adjust it to size. So we do everything per kilogram. If we're doing during exercise, we often find that we actually don't adjust that for size. So it's an interesting um, place in, in terms of the recommendations are just blanket for during exercise based on our ability to absorb and, and actually oxidize carbohydrate. At, and everyone is then equated to being relatively equal. Um, but it is still useful to think that size will still play a role. And. When when we're talking about recommendations, then what what are the carbohydrate recommendations for team sport athletes? So, uh, you've just mentioned in in game in competition in training, and then obviously out of game competition training. So, can you take us through the the out and then the in versions yeah. of that, and then potentially sum that all together for what someone might need? So, in terms of out, um, the clearest recommendations is we sort of think of a day to day stuff. You can look at. Um, Let's think of a moderate, like a person who's doing maybe uh, between an hour and two hours every day in terms of team sport activity. So maybe not an elite or a full-time athlete, um, but somebody who's at a high level. That usually would look at somewhere between five and seven grams per kilogram per day in terms of total carbohydrate that's then split across meals. But that will change based on what the training volume looks like for the day. If we then think specifically to scenarios in terms of pre or post, those also have like a guideline that you can use as a baseline. So we... um, this is where life gets really interesting. So the pre-match meal, so if this is from a competition perspective, could be one to four grams per kilogram. But you imagine that range is enormous. So anything from one gram to up to four grams per kilogram is a huge change in what the size of the meal might look like depending on the sport, the duration of the event, the um, the opportunities to fuel. So it's, again, that's it's a huge variety of outcomes that you can get there. And in terms of post the idea is that you have to then, again, look at um, refueling and resupplying all the glycogen. So that has its own guideline as well. But that then, again, complicated by appetite and all those nice things. And then during exercise, the guidelines 30 to 60 grams of carbohydrate per hour. But we know that there's endurance athletes now that are anywhere up to 90 to 100 grams an hour. So that is definitely changing the idea of that ceiling and what we can actually get in based on the preparation and how it's metab- like how it's packaged so i think that if you if you look at all of that you can imagine that that that's um quite it can go the range basic basically sorry it's okay (laughs) try that again the range ends up being really big and so i think that that's where the guideline are really only a starting point and you have to then tailor that to the athletes and what they are eating what they can get in what their appetite looks like and what they really feel like they need to push and benefit their performance so with with that in mind then i'm interested to hear from you how you would go about doing that so with those recommendations obviously you've got then a a, a team sport athlete in front of you how would you go about tailoring that person's uh, nutrition to make sure that they're fueling for performance 
So I often find I try, I start at the idea of what we're doing pre and post training or pre and post competition and then work outwards. So if I'm taking, if I'm working with an athlete that I've just started with, a lot of the time there are always lots of things that you can work on. But if we look at pre and post, so starting with a, a really good pre-training snack or pre-training meal in terms of, again, moving towards a guideline of how much carbohydrate is in there to reflect the session. So if the session is 60 minutes, 90 minutes, 120 minutes, depends what they're doing in that session. Again, is it just technical, tactical? Is it mostly running? Is it mostly set plays? Depends on the sport. How do we then decide on what they are eating? Do we need to increase it, change it? What does that look like? Most athletes don't really like eating before training because they find it usually sits on their stomach and they feel quite uncomfortable if they're running a lot. So a lot of that work is then around finding options that sit easy and digest easy and then working on recovery to make sure that we've really boxed that off, making sure that recovery snack is really um, in place and consistent. And then once we've got that in place, then moving outwards to the meal. So most athletes will generally eat a breakfast, lunch and a dinner or a supper or a tea, depending on which part of the world you're from. Um, and then those meals tend not to need as much intervention and unless, so once you've got training boxed off, you can then move outward to that. But I tend to take it in phases, also mostly because athletes can't, or as with every human being, it's quite difficult to change a lot of things at the same time. So I tend to focus on the thing that's going to make the biggest difference first and then work outwards. Um, and then tailor it also then to, again, to how the athlete feels. Do they feel energetic? Has anything changed in terms of body mass or body mass responses? And do they feel that their performance is improving in line with the changes that we've made? And then sort of, again, take that to the next stage. So what what might then a, a day of food look like for, for an athlete? So obviously that's a great kind of framework to build on, but I'm interested to hear how many eggs, like what what were we talking about for any team sport athlete you might have worked with before? So, I mean, I guess that's quite a tough question because it's the whole, again, the variety that you have for people is is huge. So, but if we did think of a classic sub-elite high training athletes in terms of maybe a one to two hours a day with a rest day. You probably find that we usually do cereals at breakfast, so an oats, a porridge, a cereal, depending on what time training is, is that if they've got a morning training session is either to then have a pre-training snack, train, and then have breakfast with recovery. So they don't have to have breakfast necessarily before the training session in the morning, but it does depend a lot on what that morning session is. Then moving into mid-morning, obviously trying to get fruits and vegetables in can sometimes be challenging if we're focusing specifically on fueling and recovery all the time. So sometimes the options in terms of a 10 o'clock Z's or an 11 and Z's, again, depending on your language with your athlete, um, might include something that's got a bit more nutritional density from a micronutrient perspective. Then lunchtime, again, starchy base, so a sandwich or a rice meal or a pasta meal with some sort of protein source with that. So using any of the plant or animal-based proteins, legumes, eggs, um, chicken, etc. Then moving into the afternoon, often if you've got a second training session, you'd have a pre-training snack, which then might also include your fruit. So again, doubling up with your nutrient stuff. Um, then allowing them to train in the afternoon, recovery snack, um, post-training, moving on to your evening meal, and then depending on the ability to get that volume in, looking at that last eating opportunity before bed, which I usually like doing dairy-based things. 
a lot of the time, one, because that's easy, but two, because we know that some of the evidence sort of indicates that a dairy or a, that type of composition of micronutrients and macronutrients is quite good for sleep and for repair overnight while the athlete is sleeping. So all of that sort of in a picture, but you can imagine we can't necessarily increase the eating opportunities over and above that. And then if we go to the next level in terms of the volume that we're doing, obviously then starting to add carbohydrate fluids, more fluid-based things to add in extra energy and extra things. But for team sport athletes, you usually find that that is sufficient because they don't tend to need to do more training than that. Because so time is, on feet is... and gym and stuff, you, you're unlikely to get more than three, three hours a day even in those um, sort of professional spaces. Yeah, so it's, it's based on what they're doing as well as what they need as a person, right? Yes, 100%. But, and, and I guess that's looking at all the things. Now you're looking at eating pattern, so the timings, fitting it around training, making sure that they feel comfortable to have different things around their training sessions, what time their training is, the style of training. So obviously gym, you might need less of a high-intensity input depending on if there's any conditioning in that gym session. If they're doing a huge field or running technical session, you might want to change the volume of the snacks that you're looking at because of the session style. And then again, everything has to accumulate to the idea that that whole day suffices for that level of training and what they're doing. And then just topping it all to like try and also make sure it tastes nice, that they can prepare it all, that they can get it all in. So it, it does end up being quite a lot of work, which is why often you find that athletes can struggle to get it all in because it, it's a lot of prep, a lot of time and a lot of food sometimes as well. I can imagine that's why a lot of professional clubs look after the players well, give them some food to go home with or Absolutely. I imagine at the top, the top, top levels are some professional chefs uh, in their houses making yeah. food for them and, and, and if you've got the money for it the, then it's great, right? Yeah, exactly. That's the joy of, of you know, top level, you know, specifically football. Um, you know, most, most of them will not be the ones in the kitchen. Um, they get full food supplied at the grounds, chefs, menus, all tailored to what they need. So it's amazing, I think, that when you've got those opportunities, that's amazing. Um, I would probably say that 80% of our athletes don't get to do that. Um, so it's just figuring out all the different things around that just to make it get as close to what we need as possible. Absolutely excellent. So Sarah, massive thanks for your time and effort on today's podcast. I've really enjoyed it. Where can people find a little bit more about you? Um, I tend not to have a great social media presence at this point, um, but I am on Twitter, just Sarah.Chantler or Sarah Chantler. And then I have an Instagram that is quite fun. It's called Food Ninja um, <laughs> underscore ZA just to um, really bring home the part that I'm from South Africa. Um, but I tend to find that, un unfortunately, if, if this, um, I work with my athletes, so the social media stuff is just anything that's interesting on the side. Excellent. So, massive thanks, Sarah. It's been a pleasure, uh, and I look forward to speaking again soon. Thank you very much. Cheers. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks to Sarah for all of her hard work on today's podcast. I really appreciate it. I'm sure you do at home too. Before you leave, I'm going to point you in the direction of the Science of Sport Coach Academy. The Coach Academy is an overgrowing library of sports science courses broken down into bite-sized chunks. So that means you can fit it in and around your busy coaching schedule. So if you've enjoyed today's podcast, you can get yourself into the Coach Academy completely for free for the next seven days using the link in the show notes, where you'll receive full access to all of those courses and, of course, a certificate of completion every time you complete one. And if you 
have enjoyed today's podcast, it would obviously be fantastic if you could recommend us to a coach, a colleague, an athlete, or a friend. That means that we can keep bringing the best possible guests and the best possible content. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks from me and Matt Solomon for Science Sport, and I'll speak to you next week.